here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. As per usual, we're going to dive straight in. Carly, will you kick us off? Dear Carly Waters, I have been listening to this podcast for a year and a half now. With so much information and encouragement in it, I have made listening into my pre-writing routine. Where the Tulips Bloom is a YA historical fiction romance set in the Dutch Golden Age, complete at 76,500 words. If you enjoyed The Book Woman of Troublesome Creek by Kim Michelle Richardson or Melanie Dickerson's The Noble Servant, then Where the Tulips Bloom with echoes of Beauty and the Beast fairy tale set at the height of Holland's tulip mania will appeal to you. Isabel, a pampered merchant's daughter, can barter her way into or out of anything. When she's caught up in a tulip theft she never intended, Isabel destroys the evidence to hide the crime instead. 
But in 1636 Holland, where prize tulips can be traded for houses, it isn't long before the consequences of the theft catch up to her. Kidnapped and imprisoned, Isabel faces the grisly prospect of losing her fingers to the owner of the tulips. When an emergency calls him away, Isabel seizes the chance to strike a bargain with the steward left in charge, Donovan, a disfigured man with no stomach for bloodshed. A secret deal to work off her debt buys Isabel time to find a way out, but there is one small flaw in this plan. If the owner of the tulip estate returns before she's gone, he could still demand her fingers as payment, and Donovan's defiance could cost him his life. As blisters become hard-earned calluses, Isabel finds she also earned Donovan's respect. But just as something more than flowers begins to take root between them, word of her father's ill health reaches Isabel. She must return home, even if it means betraying Donovan's trust or the budding desires of her own heart. I spent my teenage and college years, first as a civil war, then as a medieval reenactor. While wars and empires take up most of the room in our history books, the appeal of history for me is always the quirky bits that we don't hear about. The odd pieces of history that remind us where people are and have always been just people, and that fact is stranger than fiction. And where the tulips bloom, I seek to bring that to life for others. In the here and now, when I am not writing, I am chasing my five kids, two cats, eight chickens, and a dog around the house. Thank you for your consideration. Rebecca Tamanaha. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Okay, can you give us an indication of how many words um, that query letter was and your take on it? All right, so this one comes in at around 417 words. Okay, so just starting from the top here. So our comps, right? So one of them is definitely adult fiction, the book Woman of Troublesome Creek, I'm pretty sure. That was published by an adult imprint at Sourcebooks. And then the second comp, The Noble Servant, I'm not sure if this is YA or adult. It's under, I looked it up and it's Thomas Nelson. And usually the y, the children's imprint is under a different name. So I have a feeling that one might also potentially be adult as well. So I don't know. I think my central question for this one is like, is it, is it really YA? And we could talk about it a bit more, obviously, when, when we look at the pages, but the comps especially make me, make me a little bit confused here. So the tulip theft part here, I think this is incredibly interesting. This is a very, I don't know, very specific kind of crime and setting. It makes you, I get the impression that I'm going to be very immersed in this world and and kind of the world that's going to be created here. So I think that's great. Just starting off though, so it's called the tulip theft. So from the beginning, I didn't know, is this the bulb? Is this the actual flower? That I think maybe needs to be clarified a little bit. I assumed the bulb. And then the whole like, you know, she never intended for for all of this to happen, right? So is it that she never intended to be part of this theft ring or that she never kind of intended to be caught? What about it was intentional and what about it was something that she never intended? I just have a lot of questions kind of around around that. This is very intense, though. The fact that she is imprisoned for this and, you know, there's potential for her to lose fingers. It reminded me actually a lot of one of my favorite historical novels of all time, which is Burial Rights by Hannah Kent. Loved that book very much. Another kind of historical woman, woman was caught for a crime and and imprisoned book. Loved that. So, you know, that gave me good vibes about this, if if you want to call it that. But yeah, I think overall, I'm just kind of trying to figure out what is YA about it and what is adult about it. Because with historical, you know, teens had to grow up fast, right? Teens were married, teens had children, you know, there's just, you know, life happened a lot faster. And so sometimes there's a lot of like adultness about historical fiction. So the only thing I think that would really make this YA is if this is intended for teen readers of, you know, 
today. And that's the part where I'm like, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And, and we can talk a little bit about more of that when we get to the pages. I thought the author bio was was really strong. And yeah, I, I think there's a lot, a lot to like about this query. Thank you. Okay, give us an indication of what was in those opening pages. And then we can talk about whether you get a YA vibe from them. All right. So we start with a timestamp. We're told we are in Holland in October 1636. We start with our character, Isabel. She is kind of what we imagined kind of be at a market. So we have a lot going on in the town square. She is standing at a like a tulip bulb merchant's stall. She's kind of like touching the bulbs and the the man is kind of asking like, are you going to buy this? But we find out she doesn't actually care about the bulbs. She's actually focused on the kind of the troops, meaning like there's like a performance troupe kind of happening in the square. And her and her friend are watching the other troops because they want to set up their act. And so they're deciding whether they want to sabotage the other troops as they start to set up. They decide that they do. So she puts down the bulb and the other troop walks away and they go down and try to like cut down their tent (laughs) and then they get caught. They start running away. And as they're running away, they run back by the tulip merchant and they grab some of the bulbs to like throw, like to lob back at the other troop. And they're getting in trouble because they're like, this this bulb is worth more than your life. So we get the idea of, you know, what these bulbs are worth and and how troublesome our, our teen characters might be. Do you think that is where the bulb theft comes in, which kind of answers your question earlier? Or do you think there's something else after that? It's such a good question. I act, I kind of wanted this bulb theft bit to actually be a bit more sinister. It kind of seems like they're like stumbling into it a little bit, which almost makes it a little bit less interesting for me. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not entirely sure where it's going necessarily but I assume this is again an accidental thing and they kind of realize like hey I ran away with this bulb in my pocket and now I realize like this is worth a lot of money so I think they stumble into it which is interesting in its own way so touching on the fact of like whether this is YA or not I definitely think based on the pages this is YA we have quite immature characters I think my biggest question mark around this project is around the classism element of it or you know so in this time in history medieval ages it's it was very clear of like what level you were in terms of class whether you're like upper class you know middle class lower class all this sort of stuff and I don't know obviously what it was called in in Holland and how they would describe it and I don't know that much about the class system in Holland in 1636 but it is kind of suggested that she's of an upper class and I don't know how a girl of this age of a certain class is able to be in a troop running around with a boy who's 19 if she's in this community and she's running away with tulip bulbs that are worth real money how people in the community wouldn't know them I don't know I just have a lot of questions about like the structure of this world how she's able to get away with this and so I think I'm having a deeper existential question of like believability like do I actually believe what's happening on these pages and based on how interesting this pitch is and how interesting this book is I want to believe and I think I'm really just held back here because I'm not able to fully you know release all of my expectations and just run with this because I feel like I don't know I don't know if I really believe this world even though I really want to I think this is a case where it would have been helpful to have the author on the podcast so we could have picked their brain. But yeah, okay, what is what is your take on the rest of the writing? Was there anything else you needed to add there? So in regards to the writing, a couple things I wanted to mention is that there was a kind of typo on the first page. So that's something obviously that tripped me up on the first page. The other thing is that in between each sentences, so like after a period before you start the next sentence, there was two spaces. So this is just a reminder to all the listeners that there's you only need one space between your sentences. 
Yeah, and something else to look out for when it comes to formatting is you don't need an extra line after paragraphing. That's something I see a lot of as well when people send me formatted manuscripts. So you want, you know, your first paragraph left aligned, everyone after that indented, including dialogue, but you don't need that extra space after each paragraph. Okay, thanks, Carly. Right, Cece, let's go to you. Let's hear your first query letter. Dear Cece. I am an avid listener of The Shit No One Tells You About Writing, and it is because of the podcast that I finally put pen to paper and wrote a novel. I understand that you're drawn to works that blend genres, so I have an unconventional mashup for you. Rom-com meets travel guide. Complete at 85,000 words, Wild Child Rewind couples the sweet nostalgia of second chance romance found in Christina Lauren's Love and Other Words with the wit and wonderlust of Emily Henry's People We Meet on Vacation. Carly Frank is a recovering wild child. She spent her first 20 years saying yes to every adventure life threw at her, but she's learned the hard way that fun is just a distraction from the things that really matter. Now in her mid-30s, she trusts her head more than her heart, and after a decade at one of Canada's leading consulting firms, she expects to be promoted to partner as soon as she returns from a pesky four-week sabbatical that her company is forcing her to take. But when a major client complains about Carly's lack of passion, her boss suggests she spend her sabbatical reigniting her zest for life. Otherwise, she's off the account, putting her path to partnership in jeopardy. Convinced that Carly's fun side just needs a little incentive to appear, her best friend persuades her to travel to New Zealand to attend a culinary and adventure tour led by life coach Fletcher Scott. The only problem? Carly and Fletcher enjoyed a whirlwind romance 15 years ago. Their chemistry was electric until she ghosted him. Now, with her career on the line, Carly hopes that Fletcher can remind her what it feels like to let her heart lead the way. But she fears that this blast from the past will prove to be the biggest distraction of all. I've spent the majority of my career in consulting and have found that travel, food, and wine help me balance out the demands of such a high-pressure industry. Wild Child Rewind is my debut novel, and I continue to work on new writing projects. Can I please send you the full manuscript? Sincerely, Andrea Reynolds. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Okay, what was the word count and what was your take on that? So this is 368 words long. Couple notes on this. So first, it's pitched as a genre mashup. Rom-com meets travel guide. And that's really unusual, even for mashups, because we're not just talking about a genre mashup. We're talking about a category mashup, fiction and nonfiction. And so I don't have a clear visual of what that would look like, especially since both of the comps are straight up novels. And that actually brings me to my second point, which is the query letter doesn't explain how it's a travel guide. So maybe just remove that. Maybe it's just a straight up rom-com. Or if it is a travel guide, then I, I think I need to understand how. So I would clarify that. My second note is about the plot paragraph. The query letter establishes that the premise of the story is that the protagonist's best friend talks her into an adventure tour for the sake of her professional success. Then there's a line that reads, the only problem, Carly and Fletcher enjoyed a whirlwind romance 15 years ago. Their chemistry was electric until she ghosted him. My question is, is it the author's intention to make this a forced proximity situation? Because if so, I have a plausibility issue. 
like she could just go on another adventure tour, right? Like Carly could go anywhere she wants. It doesn't have to be with this guy. So if it's not the author's intention to make it a forced proximity situation, then the protagonist is happy to hang out with her ex or at least indifferent. So then the question becomes, why do you have that line, the only problem? It doesn't quite land. And I really want it to because here's a storytelling rule, if you will. So generally speaking, in a story, you want the protagonist to feel pressure because that's essential for tension. And authors, authors just have to torture their protagonists a little bit. And here we have the pressure from the setup at work, which is great. I'd like to also see that pressure in the plot point that follows. Okay, what was in the opening pages? Do you get a sense at all of, of the travel guide or travelogue there or, or not really? So not really. It was at least the pages that we got were just straight up rom-com, a lot of fun. The protagonist is recording her out-of-office message and she's really struggling to hit the right note because she doesn't want to go on this vacation. And then her boss walks into the office. She's expecting to be promoted. Instead, he tells her that the biggest client complained about her. And he tells her, look, this isn't the first time. Like People feel like you're cold. And she acts really calm and about it and collected. But in her head, we can see she's really upset. And she thinks to herself that if she were a man, they would call her assertive and not cold. And this wouldn't be happening to her at all. Okay, wonderful. So what was your take on them? So this submission reminded me of why I love to read fiction. My favorite, favorite reason for loving fiction so much, which is how a story that's entirely made up, can speak so much truth. When the protagonist thinks to herself, if I were a man, I'd be rewarded, but because I'm a woman, I'm being penalized. I wanted to scream in a good way. I wanted to say, yes, <laughs> that's what I was thinking too before she even thought it, just based on the behavior on the page. I've been there and it sucks. As a woman in the world, I know what that feels like. Every woman does. And I was so angry on her behalf which shows that the author did a really good job of threading that emotional truth. So congratulations. In terms of notes, to make this even better, I'd say that my only concern right now continues to be plausibility, specifically plausibility of the two connecting plot points. I can absolutely believe that her boss would say all the things he said. However, I think that going on an adventure tour as the solution to his feedback isn't landing. Like the cause and effect of that doesn't feel airtight and it should. Essentially, I need to believe that she has no choice but to go on that tour because of that feedback, and it's just too disconnected right now. There could be ways to fix this, and I would love to have the author on to brainstorm, but it's something to think about. Thanks so much, Cece, and I know these authors are listening and going, but we wanted to be on the podcast. Why aren't we on the podcast so that we could reply to this? We are limiting the number of times we have authors on the podcast because we got such a huge number of submissions in January that we've we've got a ton of submissions and we're trying to get to as many of them as possible. And of course, we can do four submissions when we don't have authors on the podcast, but only two when we do. So that is why authors, please don't hate us for that. Okay. All right, Carly, let's go to the next query letter. Hello, Carly, Cece, and Bianca. I'm excited to submit the first five pages for your feedback on the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast. I spend my mornings listening to your sage advice as I jog and have learned a tremendous amount from your masterclass masquerading as a podcast. Fab and Figs 
Ped Day Adventure is a 12,000 word chapter book for ages five to nine. Fans of The Magic Treehouse by Mary Pope Osborne and from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frank Wheeler by E.L. Koningsberg will love the predictable plot pattern of the misadventures of our main character Fab and her little brother Fig. Fab is a 10-year-old kid who wants nothing more than a little independence. Feeling a little left out, Steph and Macy both walked to and from school together. They both made the softball team. Between secret handshakes and new coded language, she's tried everything to convince her dad to loosen up. Even a week of sleep-in protests, but he won't budge. But today that all changes when Fab and Fig's dad drop them off at school late on a Friday morning and they find out the school is officially closed. A chance to prove she can handle a little freedom. Fab's daring sense of adventure kicks in as she convinces her more discerning and shyer little brother Fig. Filled with bus rides, live performances, museum visits, softball games, and lots and lots of ice cream, Fab and Fig navigate the big city of Mellonville all on their own and experience what it's like to budget their measly $4.85 and make real decisions that will keep them relatively out of trouble. My name is Alex Kacken, and I'm a mom of three imaginative and curious kiddos. When I'm not at either my full-time jobs as an English literature professor at Concordia University and director of strategy at a marketing agency, I write and write and write. I have a PhD in literature and have two self-published children's books, When You Grow Smaller and When Katie Shared Pink, as well as online installments of essays about women entitled My Profile Projects. This would be my debut novel. Can I send the full manuscript over for your consideration? Sincerely, Alex Kacken. I'm loving the calls to action we are seeing now in the query letters. You can see our listeners are listening to the advice. Okay, word count, Carly, and your take on that. Okay, so this one comes in at 373 words. So I think we need to trademark this, your masterclass masquerading as a podcast. If we can, if we can take that, Alex, we will, we will take that because I feel like that is exactly what we try to do. So thank you for, for the kind words that everybody includes at the top of their pitches. We always, we always appreciate that. Okay, now I want to talk about category here. So chapter book for ages five to nine. Chapter books are generally seven to nine because five-year-olds can't read unless you're kind of like a genius. So basically it would be like the parent would be reading it to the five-year-old. So it's not like, it's not impossible. It would just, if you do want this to be five to nine, it would really be like part of your target audience would be more parents and librarians, right? Like that's something we think about when we think about who our target audience is for this category. Obviously we want children to love the books. That's how, you know, they fall in love with them and get recommended and, and how, you know, they have such long lifespans and people get so passionate about the books they read at, you know, at that chapter book at a middle grade level. But just as a small clarification point, I'm not sure if five-year-olds might be necessarily the target age for this one. So one of the other kind of comments in this pitch paragraph is that they will love the predictable plot pattern. And so like predictable plot pattern, like, is that a selling point? I mean, it is kind of expected in, you know, chapter books that there will be a rhythm, but it's really like a predictable plot pattern. If this you're writing a series, you know, like I read the Mercy Watson books to my children, right? And it's like each book, there is a predictable plot pattern in each book, but it's not like within the book itself. So I don't know. I didn't really feel like that was necessarily needed there. So our next paragraph. One thing I kind of wanted to highlight as a general note for all the listeners is we don't need to mention characters in the query letter unless they are a main character. 
So we have here that she's feeling a little left out, comma, Steph and Macy both walk to and from school together. So at first I wasn't sure if Steph or Macy was the real name of this fab character. I was so confused about who Steph and Macy were. And it seems like these are kind of like friend characters that I don't know how much they show up. So if they don't really show up any way other than to frame how fab is not doing what Steph and Macy are doing, I really don't think they need to be mentioned in the query letter at all because I, again, was, was confused by that. And then the rest of this paragraph also, I feel like, doesn't have a lot of flow to it because we, you have the secret handshakes, the coded language, telling her dad to loosen up in the sleep and protest. I'm like, what do any of these things have to do with each other? Like, who's doing the secret handshakes? Is it her and her dad? The coded language, right? Because then we flow into the paragraph, the rest of the sentences talking about the dad and the sleep and protest and how he won't budge. So I had a feeling like this was one of those career letters where the author was trying to cram in a lot of information. And they were like, if I just combine all these sentences, I can get all the information in. And that that sentence just really wasn't working for me. I actually don't think that whole paragraph is working. I personally would just cut that whole paragraph because the next one is, but today all that changes when Fab and Fig's dad dropped them off at school late, right? Like that's the book. So personally, I would cut most of, if not all of that paragraph above, go with the second one that I highlighted here. The rest of it's really strong, right? It's like these two kids go off on an adventure. So I, I really like the rest of it. Wonderful. Okay, opening pages and your take on them. Okay, chapter one is called The Protest. We meet our characters, our Fab and Fig character and their dad, because our character is not wanting to get out of bed. They're doing a, a sleep-in protest, meaning they don't want to go to school because they're protesting the fact that they can't walk to school on their own. So it's the beginning of the day, you know, start of the day, and the dad is kind of coming in saying, we got to get ready. They're getting all their stuff together. We have the dialogue between the children and the dad explaining, like, why they can't walk to school and, and all of that sort of stuff. We find out that the mom and the dad have recently separated, and so the children are currently with their dad, and then they'll spend the weekend with their mom. So this is kind of a new house and a new setup for them. And then the dad drives them to school and drops them off. And the, one of the children forgot their library books. And obviously we know in the query letter what happens next, but that's as far as we get in the actual pages. Okay, so what did you think of those opening pages? All right, so we are starting with the beginning of the day, right? On our way to school. I find these really challenging because it is such a mundane and average scenario in the sense that like, all children start their day, they get up, they go to school, right? So what is special about this? Obviously, there's the sleep and protest part. But I don't know, I, I kind of like it. I like it more as we go along. It's just initially, you're giving me that like, ugh, you know, waking up in the morning vibes, which I, I don't know, I feel like there's a potential for, for a stronger, more exciting start, even if it is still is the beginning of the day. It was just like, you know, the whole classic kind of getting out of bed scene. And so when this child is trying to explain to the father exactly how far is, she says it's 19 blocks, she says it's only like 19 blocks. I don't think she should say like, like 19 blocks. She should know exactly how many blocks it is if she's trying to make her case for, you know, I know it's 17 and a half, you know, steps or whatever it is, right? Like, I think this child, if they were obsessed about this, they would know the exact metric of how far away it is. So I would just cut the like 19 blocks. They have to, they have to know exactly, exactly how far it is. Okay, and so the father makes the case of why the children can't walk. So he says, it's just not safe, sweet pea. He knelt to kiss my forehead. There have been a lot of changes recently, I know, but I don't feel comfortable with you walking home with Fig at this point. At 10 and 7 years old, something bad could happen. What if you or Fig got hurt? What would you do? So this is not a parenting podcast, obviously, but... As I said, the target audience for this book is parents and librarians. And so I feel like as a parent, I have maybe different values around whether 
I would want my child to read a book where they might potentially be scared about whether, like, should they feel scared about walking to school alone and whether our neighborhoods are safe and like what kind of messaging we're portraying to children around the safety in their environments. So that like, you know, it's not a red flag for me. It's just like a yellow flag. So I'm like, is this book, what are we going to explore through this book that is going to teach my kid that it is safe to be in our neighborhood, that you can build confidence through walking to school. And I'm just curious about how we're getting it because the messaging from the parent is very negative. And so I'm, as a parent, I'm thinking, mm, okay, what I, how do I want to present this message to my child? And I'm just, I wasn't on board necessarily with the way that the dad was trying to communicate that information. So that was kind of my, my note on the, the premise. There's a lot that's really, really good in these pages. I really liked the way that they explored like the fact that, you know, they don't live with a mom anymore. So the child says, you always let us walk home when we all live together at mom's, Fig added. Finally a sign that he was on my team and true, right? So it's like, we we're trying to figure, we're starting to figure out the family dynamics and it was all told in a really subtle way. It wasn't like a information dump of, you know, why the parents are separated. I thought there was a really, there's a lot of really subtle, subtle ways to do this. So yeah, I don't know. I just, I felt confused about how I should feel as a reader about whether this town is safe, right? Because then there's a line that says, this isn't about trusting you, my love, dad said as we back into the garage. And yes, Mellonville isn't dangerous, but it's not safe enough for two kids to be roaming around alone. And I'm like, I just don't know if I agree with that. Again, this isn't a parenting podcast. I don't need to get into all my parenting values, but I don't know. I don't know. I, I just don't know if, if I would agree. You can see I don't have children because I'm just like, 19 blocks, that's bloody far. Hell no, the father should be driving them. So <laughs> All right. But yeah, it's the messaging, like you say. What 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 are you teaching the kids by reading this to them, et cetera, et cetera, right? And again, we might have been best served by having the author on the podcast again. The authors do not hate me for the scheduling I'm doing here. Okay, Cece, let's hear the last query letter. Let's do this. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, I'm once again writing to gush about how much I adore and appreciate your podcast and to seek your feedback for my revised query. Cece, since family stories are your catnip, I'm directing this query to you. Although I'm hopeful for feedback from the entire shit team. That's us. Shit team. I like it. We're the shit team. And our listeners are a bunch of shitheads. This is great. <laughs> okay, let's let's take it as that. Yes. We Never Took a Bad Picture is a 100,000-word upmarket multi-POV dual-timeline family drama where secrets buried 30 years ago bubble back up under the guise of a golden anniversary party. Told through layered narratives, this book would appeal to fans of Ask Again Yes, The Latecomer, and Fates and the Furies. In 1988, Gloria and Artie Joyce unexpectedly bury Teddy, their teenage son right before they make a final pact to save their tenuous marriage. Artie will give up alcohol and affairs if Gloria promises to forget her son ever existed. 30 years later, Gloria decides to shake up their placid routine by throwing an extravagant anniversary party, one that Artie instinctively know leads them down the dangerous path of nostalgia. As Gloria curates their marital legacy through photographs, Artie teeters between choosing unwanted retirement or the smothered urge to take his own life. 2018 will be their most turbulent year yet, reuniting the Joyces with their best friends, their strange daughter, and their forgotten traumas. The past bleeds into the present, uncovering long-buried secrets about their true marital legacy 
and the circumstances around Teddy's untimely death. The book's full manuscript covers several sensitive issues, including suicidal ideation, pregnancy, trauma and loss, addiction, and the death of a child. I write in Nashville, where I balance my literary life with my roles as an educator, parent, and newly minted marathoner. My work has appeared in Jersey Devil Press, Moonsick Magazine, Literary Orphans, Fox's Magazine, and others. When not working on my next novel in progress, you can find me perfecting vegan laminate dough with my eight-year-old, revisiting 80s cinematic gems with the entire family, including our two cats and two lizards, or revamping my writerly site at ashleynroth.com. Please let me know if I may send you my full manuscript. Thank you for your time and consideration. Ashley N. Roth. Thank you, Cece. When we had Dong Wan on the podcast, he got to the end of each query letter and he was like, I don't know why everybody's obsessed with telling people about their dogs. And I had to explain to him that it's a podcast thing, that we we love hearing about dogs. And that's why people include it and they won't be including it in general emails or general query letters to other agents. Okay, Cece, how many words in that and what was your take on it? I always want to hear about all the fur babies. Always, always. It's never too much. I never get bored. Okay, so this query is clocking in at 363 words. It's good, but I think it needs a little bit of work still. Right now, the plot paragraph is focusing on emotionality and interiority. It's all inner life. It's all what they're thinking and feeling. I think it should focus on the plot points. This is the only time I will focus on plot points more than interiority and, 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 and emotionality, the query letter. The only thing I know about the plot point is the party, which is already in the paragraph above, as it should be, because that's where the hook goes. There is a line that recaps events to come. It reads, 2018 will be their most turbulent year yet, reuniting the Joyces with their best friends, their estranged daughter, and their forgotten traumas. But that's really a big picture view of what's happening. I would have preferred to get the inciting incident, perhaps a disruption at the party, followed by conflict, what confrontation or collision occurs, and then unexpected complications. Things aren't what they seem, dun-dun-dun, all leading up to the climax. So my advice is to work on this, rewrite this plot paragraph with plot in mind, and you can save the interiority and emotionality for the pages, which you do really well. And we'll get to that in a second. As well, as a second note, there's a mention of a dual timeline. And I'm not seeing a full storyline for 1988. Right now, it feels more like a story setup as opposed to a timeline in its own right. So perhaps tweak that to ensure that we know there's central conflict in the past too, not just a tragedy. You don't consider the fact that he's like, well, I'll stop my affairs and drinking if you forget we have a child who passed away to be like enough of a, a conflict there? It's a setup, right? Like that's their agreement. And then what? Like, what does that culminate to? With dual timeline, it's really, really tricky to insert two, two central conflicts and still keep mystery because we already know that what will happen as a result of their, of their deal because we have the present. So we need something, a conflict there that's mysterious enough that I'm also invested in the past timeline. Does that make sense? Perfect. Yes, 100%. Okay, so what was in those opening pages and what's your take on them? So the story begins in Gloria's point of view. Gloria and her husband are choosing the right color for the invitations to the party they're going to throw. And through interiority, we learn that Gloria wants her husband to admit that silver is the wrong color. That's because for their silver anniversary, 
they pretended like it never existed because that's when their son died. And Gloria imagines a full themed event with the music and clothing and decorations of 1988. But she's only imagining this. She admits to herself she wouldn't go that far. She just wants her husband to say something. She wants to know how he would react. She doesn't want him living in denial, essentially. Eventually, they change the subject and we have a line break and then we go to Artie's point of view. We only get a page or so of that and it's all interiority on Artie arriving at work and how he feels really comforted by the sameness and routine of the market where he works. Awesome, Cece. Okay, how did you feel about those opening pages? So the author did a really good job of establishing what is being left unsaid. I cannot overstate the importance of when you're writing dialogue, we need to know what is being said, the stuff that goes in quotation marks, but also what is being left unsaid by whoever's head we're in. We're in Gloria's head. I know exactly what Gloria isn't saying. I know what she's feeling like when she isn't saying it. I know what she wants her husband to say and what she expects him to actually say or not. The author has layered all of that in masterfully, like such a good job. And that is really hard to do, especially in a compressed way like this author did it, which is why my note in the query letter, I said, save it for the pages because you're really good at it. And you are like, this is amazing. I will say though, well, I fully stand by my comment that this is amazing and I want the scene to still be in the novel. Don't think it's your opening pages. I don't think you're starting in the right place. The conversation between them, the only mystery, only potential mystery is why silver's the wrong color. And we already know that because the reader will have read the pitch copy. And also because her interiority says that her interiority says 1988 is the year we pretend we forget because her son died. So the thing to remember is that when you're choosing a place to start, it's really important to plant curiosity seeds. And that has to involve a mystery. You can't be curious about what you already know. So what is the mystery here? Either add a mystery to these pages and then you get to keep this fantastic dialogue as a you know, good place to start your novel or choose a different place to start and have that be a place of more mystery and then keep the scene for later. Remember, if there's no mystery, there is no curiosity. And if there is explanation, there's there could be a tension leak. So essentially just I, I would work on that. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. All right, that's it for today's episode. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. 
Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, everybody. It is Carly here doing the author interview segment for our show. I am very excited. We have somebody returning. We have a returning guest today. We have Andrea Dunlop. She is the author of five books, including Women Are the Fiercest Creatures, which is out now with Zibby Books. She is also the host and the creator of the investigative true crime podcast, Nobody Should Believe Me. She's the founder of Munchausen Support, a nonprofit dedicated to helping Munchausen's by proxy victims and survivors, and a member of the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children's Munchausen's by Proxy Committee. She's the author of the novels Losing the Light, She Regrets Nothing, and We Came Here to Forget, plus a novella called Broken Bay. All of these are from Atria Books. She lives in Seattle with her husband and two children, and we are so excited that she's here. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me, Carly. It's such a pleasure to be back. Yes. So last time you were here, we kind of talked broad strokes about the business. But today, since we have a fun new novel to talk about and get into, Women Are the Fiercest Creatures, I want to kind of start with that. So for those of you that didn't listen to our last episode, obviously it was great and you should go back and listen to it. Andrea is my client. And so we we go way, way back in terms of all of our inner knowledge of Andrea's career. So this one, I want to talk about manuscripts that kind of shapeshift and change dramatically over the course of idea to book. So 
women are the fiercest creatures. It had many titles. It had a few different approaches, but I, I want to get to like, what was the main hook? Like what was always at the core of it for you? Was it like a plot line or a central question? Like how did you always keep coming back and knowing like what the through line of the book was always going to be? Oh, that's such a great question. And yes, it's really interesting now that we've worked on, yeah, five books together. And we say five because I also have a nonfiction book coming out with St. Martin's next year, which has been like a totally different experience. But yeah, and every novel that I've written has taken form a different way. Some of them came out really immediately. Sort of the, the first draft was not that dissimilar from the last draft. That was true for We Came Here to Forget. And then some of them really, really, really had many different iterations. And that, that was true for She Regrets Nothing as well as this one. So yeah, with Women Are the Fiercest Creatures, I really started off with Sam. So my I, I consider her my main character. Anna is also a main character. You hear from both of their perspectives throughout the book. But I really started with Sam Flores Walsh uh, and this idea of being in midlife and having these events and this person that you were involved with that was your first love that really shaped your young life and affected the trajectory of your career and your life in this huge way. And then sort of thinking you've moved past that and then realizing that you have it. And so I think that was really the part that stayed consistent. And as you know, because you... <laughs> read many different drafts of this book. There was different perspectives in there. There was whole other characters and subplots. And for me, I think in general with my writing process, a lot of stuff ends up on the cutting room floor. And that's that to me is part of the fun, right? I think of all of that as not wasted effort, but really just scaffolding that it took to to build the book. And so I think this one is a function of the time in my life that I was writing this book. I started it after I finished the, I finished the manuscript for We Came Here to Forget while I was pregnant with Fiona, my older daughter in 2018, <laughs> 2018, that's right. So I finished that manuscript, that book came out in 2019, but I finished the manuscript in 2018 and then I had some time, which I can't even conceive of having like time to just randomly start a project right at, at this moment because I have a lot going on. But yeah, so I, I mean, I always really like to start my next novel as soon as I'm finished with one, just that's part of how I sort of recover from the process of being done with a novel. There's always like, you're very elated that you're done with it, but then you sort of are sad and you miss it. And and so I had always is very, I find it very healthy to like start on the next project. So I started on this project. I had this sort of germ of an idea, but I was writing during pregnancy and then it was sort of had this off and on just because of what life was, which is launching a book and having, having a very small child. And then the pandemic happened. And if anyone can remember, the last several years have been pretty <laughs> eventful. So there was kind of, you know, a lot of interruptions with this book in a way. But I think that that sort of actually gave it the room to breathe and, and become what it was. So I always knew that motherhood was going to be a huge theme. This was the book that I wrote while I was becoming a mother, both for the first and second time. I mean, I spent a lot of time during both pregnancies and both postpartum periods working on this book. Yeah, I mean, I, I think those were those were sort of the the central tenants. And I knew I wanted to set it in Seattle. That was new for me. Broken Bay is set in Seattle, but that's a novella that was a much shorter project. So I really wanted to dig into my the place where I'm from and, and how that's changed over the last especially over the last sort of 20 years. And so, yeah, so those were those were the main things that I that I started with. And from there, just kind of followed the characters wherever they were going to take me. And so the pieces that ended up on the cutting room floor, do you save them in like a word doc? You delete them? Are they never to be seen again? Like what happens to those lost words? 
I save them at least for it to actually, they're probably still saved. I do save them. I have, I, I have a document called whatever the title is underscore boneyard. And that's where I put all of the, like, especially when I cut just like massive chunks. And I think a lot of writers find it really painful to cut huge chunks out of their books. I find it weirdly satisfying. Don't ask me why. Like I, if I like just that, that feeling of like, the select all like with a huge, you know, like 10 page speech and just get it out of there. And I mean, obviously when I know that it's when I know that it needs to go. And and I think that's because I write really bloated first drafts. I mean, I, I frequently end up with like 100,000 word drafts, which again, <laughs> you know, because you're one of the people that reads them. <laughs> so another, so speaking of things that had to go, one of the things that had to go with this one was backstory. So I think the kind of battle with backstory is really interesting because there's so much that we kind of needed to know about these characters that ended up shaping like who they become in the present storyline. But obviously we need to, in some ways, we need to know a lot of that to understand the modern day plot, but we also had to cut a lot out. So how did you reconcile how much backstory is enough backstory? How do you know when that, when that's enough? Yeah, I think that's a really, I think you just sort of have to work it out in the drafts. And I think that one of the things that I always want to that that I want to be consistent with all my books is I always want them to be page turners right like I the best compliment someone can give me is that they were either up too late or they were late for something because they're reading my book right like that's really the experience I want to give to readers I want them to feel like they want to get back to the book I don't want them to make feel like they're and make them feel like they're having to like slog through some morass of of details that that don't feel totally germane to the plot and so I really like to have a I like to have a tight plot I like to have a, a fast moving plot. And, and yet I also really like to go in depth in my characters and I want them to feel real and fleshed out. And so I think it's really just that balance. And so I think it's a lot of like, that's just a lot of revision work, right? It's a lot of finding out where is the momentum just really slowing down or where is this like, you're seeing a piece of backstory that feels so compelling to the plot in the moment because it feels like it's really unlocking something for, that you needed to know about the character. And I think for me, I need to write all that other stuff to get to it, right? So it's like, you may need one really important, really powerful flashback scene that is ends up being two pages in the final book, but it might take 50 pages to get there. I just think that's like the process of getting to know your characters and figuring out what they're trying to tell you. And I, I think you write, it's sort of like, I guess it's, it's like actors doing like method acting, right? It's like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think method acting sounds like kind of a jerky business, but like, you know, when, when, I mean, I can't even imagine being around someone that was a method actor, but the idea there, right, is that like, you have to do a lot of stuff off screen to be able to capture what that person's like on screen. So I think it's kind of the same with books, right? Like sometimes you just have to like spend a lot of time on the page with your characters so that the part that you're actually end up showing the reader feels really real. Because I always want my characters to feel real. When I read books, that's one of the things that really matters to me is do these feel like real people? Do I do I sort of think about them afterwards and kind of like wonder what they're doing? And I think that like that sort of trick of the mind is is that sleight of hand that novelists can pull off is is like that's one of the most powerful things of novels where you're just like, no, I, I understand intellectually that this is not a real person, but you feel in your heart like they're real a little bit. And that's how I feel about my characters. So. 
So one of the things we're always debating on the podcast is prologues. And so your book has a prologue. It has always had a prologue as far as I can remember. And so how did you know that this book needed a prologue? Yes, I, I do love a prologue and I love a prologue that's a flash forward. I think that just, again, because I do, I have these sort of warring parts of me, right, where I really love to go like behind the curtain and behind the next curtain and behind the next curtain. So I like to give, I like to have a lot of backstory. I like to go in depth on the characters, but I also want to keep the plot moving. And so I think one, one thing that like can help you get away with that a little bit as a, as a writer is to like do a flash forward. I mean, I think that's, that's why that device can work is that you sort of are like, okay, I'm telling you a story, but like at some point, you know, in this book, like at some point a baby is going to be missing. So then they're like, ah, missing baby. And then the trick is you can't like get so far away from that idea that it feels totally tacked on. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it can work. And I think you have to find some way of sort of dropping your reader into the action. And so I think that's just, that's a device that, that I happen to like. All right. So I want to talk about you as a storyteller a little bit. So because you've done novels, novella, you're working on this nonfiction project with St. Martin's Press, and you also have your successful podcast called Nobody Should Believe Me. So I'm really interested in hearing about how you let your inner storyteller guide where you need to go with the different stories and, and deciding how you're going to explore it in all these different forms. Yeah, thank you. And it's it's been a really interesting journey to go from being primarily a fiction storyteller to having a big part of my life be about real stories and real people in their real lives. And it's a totally different challenge. But I think actually that my skills as a novelist have really helped me. And I think the big key is empathy is that you have to bring just a lot of empathy for it. I mean, I know I've known a lot of novelists at this point. I think that's kind of one of the things that makes someone a good novelist is just the ability to put themselves in someone else's shoes. I don't think you can really write fiction unless you have an ability to do that. And so I think one of the things that with the podcast and so the podcast, as you mentioned at the top, is about it's an investigative podcast about Munchausen by proxy, which is a very terrifying and horrific form of child abuse. So for this, when we're interviewing people, we interviewed a lot of experts, but we've also talked to for both our second season is coming out in May. For both seasons, we talked to a lot of people who had been through cases. And so you're really asking someone to open up to you about the worst thing that's ever happened to them. And you just have to be so respectful and like let that person just give that person the space to tell you. And then I think for the podcast, I, I worked really closely with my producer, Tina Knoll, who is incredible. She has a studio out here called Large Media. And she really helped with sort of like, how do you then take kind of those narratives and craft them into a, into a story? And it's funny, like something people say to me all the time about the podcast is they're like, oh my gosh, I just like, I loved it. And they're like, is that weird? Is it weird to say I loved it? Because of course it's about this really difficult topic. But I, I think, no, like I wanted to make it entertaining and I, that does sound like a strange word for what we're talking about but if you can't make it compelling and interesting and fascinating and make people want to listen to the next episode then they won't listen to it and so you have that uh, yeah we really took pains to not make it gruesome to not make it sensationalized because it was a huge problem when the media covers this topic in particular they get very fixated on the medical horror of it, the number of surgeries the child had and all the gruesome details. And so we really tried to just bring that humanity and that empathy to it. But of course we wanted to make it compelling and it is a fascinating topic. And that's why I thought it was a good fit for a podcast. 
And I think there's a ton of like good information in there, but you can't get the good information to people if you don't tell them a story. And I think like that is the the journey of my life over the last couple of years, which we came here to forget, you know, Munchausen by proxy was a big theme that was very much inspired by my family's story. And that is what brought me into this community of experts that I'm now in and sort of inspired this other work. And it's been really interesting to see, you know, when I first met with the committee, I, I sort of thought, well, all of these people have PhDs and advanced degrees and they're academics and they're researchers and they're doctors and they have all these very impressive professional credentials that make it very obvious why they're in that space. And for me, I was sort of like, I feel like there's going to be something for me to do here, but I'm not sure what. And actually, like, being the storyteller for this part of it or being a storyteller, I don't certainly want to indicate that I'm like the only one, but that having that function on the committee has really become my role, sort of taking these the academic works and the stories of the people who have talked to the committee who've been through cases and and the survivors that get in touch and, and just like helping, helping sort of turn those into these, these stories that are, that people can relate with and that feel real and, and human to people. So in that way, it's, it's, it's interesting how similar that is to, to writing a novel, because I think that something that I'm sure that you see in a lot of like first novels, I, I know this was when like, back when I have been working with people in workshops or when I was reading Slush for an Agency, like something you see a lot in first novels or in sort of preliminary attempts at novels is that people will say, well, but this really happened. And you'll say, well, it doesn't matter if it happened in real life. It has to feel real on the page. And that's that's interesting. Like that is the challenge of, of nonfiction storytelling in a way. It's like things don't happen in a perfect sort of narrative arc, but you have to put them in like there. there's a sort of you have to put things into some kind of like satisfying story, even if it doesn't have a perfect ending, because of course, you're not going to like tack one on in real life if it didn't happen. But it, there is this challenge of like, yes, it can have happened in real life, but that doesn't make it feel real automatically on the page. And so I think that's been like an interesting, like that's something you have to really learn as a novelist. Like, yeah, we're all drawing from our real life, but just because something like really happened that way in your real life, it does not mean it's going to work as part of a novel. And so it's it's kind of the same thing. Makes a lot of sense. Okay. I want to pivot to kind of talking about the larger kind of publishing journey that you're on. So a lot of our listeners are kind of either in the writing phase of their career or the newly published phase of their career. So they might be coming at it from a different perspective than you. So I, I want you to kind of enlighten everybody about all the different angles and aspects of different editors and publishers that you've worked with. And I think what the central question I have for you is like, what do you value most in a publisher and a publishing partner now that you've kind of been with a few different groups? Oh boy, that's a big question. <laughs> I think, I mean, I feel like you are my primary sort of publishing journey partner. Like you're my, you're my ride or die. You're my literary spouse. So I, and I think like, <laughs> I think that really like trust is massive. I mean, I think, and, and I, and just in my creative work overall, I mean, that is something that like, I've learned some hard lessons on um, along the way. And so I think like trust and good communication, honestly, like, like any relationship, I think, I think are huge. And I think the other thing that I really appreciate is people being open-minded to new ideas. I think that 
which you always are. And that's been really fun, like working with the Zippy Books team, just because they're, they're really outside of that traditional publishing space where the rest of my books have, have come out of. And, and I, I say that and, and also want to put the caveat that I, I've really loved a lot of the people that I've worked with in the traditional space. And I'm still working with my editor, Sarah Canton, who did my first three novels. She's the one I'm working with on my nonfiction project. So it's, I am in no way sort of like <laughs> divorced from the traditional space, but I think it's, I hope that we are in a time of innovation. I think like there's these various things going on going on in publishing right now that are are sort of bellwethers, right? Like there's the fact that the Department of the DOJ shot down the PRH Simon Schuster merger, right? So that's like a move against consolidation, which consolidation has really been the trend for the last I don't know, at least 20 years, certainly since I've been in publishing. And then the HarperCollins strike. There's these things that like really, I hope, point to an industry shift. And I think it's it's much needed. I think that like there are so many ways that people find books, ways that people consume books that have changed so much over the last 10 years, 20 years, five years that are changing kind of by the minute with like TikTok coming in as a huge book recommendation machine and the influencers there really doing a lot of work for discoverability. And so I really like, I really like working with people that are excited about these things. I mean, I think what I saw in when I was working in traditional publishing back when I was within the company, not not as an author, but as a, as a publicist, is that a lot of those changes were met with fear. And I think like, and I mean, it wasn't even the pace of change then, which was a good, 10 plus years ago was not even what it is now, but just sort of the idea of like formats changing, the media changes. There's a lot of like wanting to stick with the way that things have always been done. And so I really appreciate so anybody that really brings some creativity to it and just like is willing to try new things, because I think that's sort of the spirit that we that we all need going forward. Trust is the biggest thing. I mean, it, it is like, I think, I don't think I'm an overly sensitive artistic type person that like needs to be handled with kid gloves or anything. But I think ultimately, like when, when you're putting your work in someone's hands, there is a lot of trust involved. You want to be like, I think trust with your agent is huge. And then your editor secondarily, and then the publishing house that you're working with. So I, I think that's a big like trust. And, and then I think ingenuity, I, I love to see that. Absolutely. We are aligned on that. Okay. So I want to firstly do a couple rapid fire questions, but then I want to tell all the listeners that we have a very exciting thing. We have an excerpt, an audio excerpt from Andrea's new novel, Women Are the Fiercest Creatures, right after this. So make sure you listen right to the end. But first, I want to do some rapid fire questions for you. Last time you were on the podcast, I made you do like quick pitches of your own book. And I don't think you do that. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Um, You're a okay. savage, Carly. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I'm insufferable. Okay, so here's our rapid fire question. So first is hot chocolate or apple cider? Oh, hot chocolate. A beach vacation or a city vacation? Oh, beach vacation. I lived in New York City for 10 years. I got my city fixed. Thanks very much. <laughs> All right. Are you a plotter or a pantser? Oh, pantser, 100%. And audiobooks versus print books? Oh, see, and now I'm going to split the difference in this because I like all nonfiction and audiobooks and all fiction and print books. 
Well, there you go. So I agree. I tend to listen to a lot more audiobooks these days in general, but I find myself have the same, that I have the same split with you. Okay. Yeah. Well, that was everything that we had for the wonderful Andrea. If you haven't listened to her first episode, make sure you go back and listen to that one. But this one, we were covering Women Are the Fiercest Creatures. And now you get to listen to an audio excerpt as well. So we are so happy for you that this novel's made it out into the world. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me and your audience is wonderful. I heard from a bunch of them after I was on last time and it made me smile. So I'm very findable. Come come talk to me on uh, Instagram if you like. <laughs> there you have it, everybody. Go find her. And now I am so thrilled to offer our podcast listeners an exclusive audio excerpt of Women Are the Fiercest Creatures by Andrea Dunlop, published by Zibby Books. Listen on. Hi, this is Zibby Owens, and I am the CEO of Zibby Books, the publishing company which is bringing you Today, Women Are the Fiercest Creatures, written by Andrea Dunlop and read by Frankie Corzo. I am so excited to bring you this book because it is absolutely amazing. I have the sticker of Women Are the Fiercest Creatures on my computer because I can't get enough of it, and you will absolutely love hearing this book. Tell us what you think. Enjoy. For Fiona. Prologue. It was the middle of the night, and Jake Sarnoff could not sleep. He paced one of the many bedrooms at the far end of the house. The rooms were meant for guests, which he and his wife almost never had. Between the arrival of their new baby, his divorce from his previous wife, and his company's IPO, he wasn't sleeping much at all. He gazed out the window. He'd worked hard for a view like this. Nestled into the cliffs, the 8,000-square-foot home overlooked Puget Sound, with a private glass atrium for his meditation practice. Nothing disrupted the trees and water, that feeling of being perched on the edge of the natural world. And yet, it was only a short walk to charming downtown Portside. Seattle proper was only a 30-minute drive away. A few miles away, Anna Sarnoff was sleeping fitfully in the house she'd once shared with Jake. She had the television on in the background, reruns playing to canned laughter. In the morning, she'd wake up to a hangover and a feeling of unease that had been growing in the pit of her stomach. Down on the other side of town, in her cozy two-bedroom bungalow on a quiet side street, Samantha Flores Walsh was sleeping better than she had in a long time. Despite the stress of the past few weeks, she felt relieved. The truth would soon be out. She was about to be free. Jake adjusted the blinds. Down the hall, his wife Jessica slept alongside their tiny six-week-old daughter. Neither of them had any idea that in a few short hours, Jessica would wake up and start screaming. Jake would never forget the sound of that animal howl. The sight of the rumpled comforter where their baby girl no longer lay nestled beside her mother. She was gone. 
And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase.
as new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about and you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15, that's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15, that's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.